Well, in the history of this church, there has probably never been a series of sermons when so many people have lived in such fear that they might be the one rostered on for Bible reading. (laughs) Every week before church, uh, one of the people rostered on over the day, it happened again this week, uh, has uh, contacted me and muttered something about difficult names. <laughs> and can't we just skip them? In fact, if you noticed, if you're following along, we did just skip a whole list. <laughs> and the heartless preacher has just said, well, be glad I didn't give you chapter 7 <laughs> or chapter 11. <laughs> Someone's counted, there's something like 300 names in this book. Uh, and 250 of them only appear in Nehemiah and nowhere else in the Bible. These are not the greats of history. Uh, But you don't have to be a deep Bible scholar to be sitting there wondering, what's the point of all these unpronounceable this? And I don't know if in your quiet times and you're reading the Bible, you're just like, oh, names, see you later. Uh, I don't know, see you later. Oh, look, we're at the next book. <laughs> Anyone ever done that kind of thing? Yeah, you want to admit it in front of everyone. Uh, especially today, we're covering four chapters of such lists from chapter 9, uh, four lists of names in chapters 9 through to chapter 12. Now, of course, these lists of names could be there because Nehemiah is a pedant uh, with a fetish for trivia and he just loves names. He's like the person who sits through the credits to find out who the gaffer and the best boy are and goes, oh, oh, they worked on The Great Escape you know, 40 years ago as well. Look at there, they're back. <laughs> um, and Nehemiah might be like that, but, but he's so much more than that. He's, he's the hero of the book, but he's not a typical Bible hero. He's not a warrior. He's not a priest. He's not a king. He's not a prophet. Uh, he's a senior civil servant and, you know, they are kind of like this, aren't they, uh, when they work in offices like that. He's, a, he's, a, he's got the planning, organising and overseeing skills of a project manager and it's all combined with a heart that deeply knows and loves his God. But he's also a man who God gave a great vision to and not just to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, But really it's all about rebuilding the people of God. That's what he's about. And so in the end, this book isn't about town planning. It's a book about church building and not not the bricks and mortar but with flesh and blood reality of a people who are meant to be a light for their nations. And even though their names are difficult, this is who they were. That's why they're here. The walls were only a means to an end. It was all about the people. So the list are not just of any old people from history. They're not just randoms. These are the people of God, real people in history who God blessed as he rebuilt his nation in order to fulfil his promises that he made years and years before to their predecessors and not just promises directed to them about how God would bless them but promises that through this nation that all the nations of the world will be blessed by God. And it's especially significant given how it all looks so hopeless and pathetic at the start of the book. No nation, no land, no city, only a few stragglers in exile, in captivity, thousands of miles away. All of God's promises seem to have come to nothing, but here they are, now back in the land, they're rebuilding 
And at this point, they've finished the wall. They're protected. Uh, these are their names, individuals who God loves and who God listed and God remembers. And I think there's something really powerful in that. God loves individuals. Uh, and their names go down in history, recording his word uh, for us. They matter to God and they matter to Nehemiah. And today, through these several more lists of names, we're going to be shown not just what God did through them, but what God was doing in them and to them and what it means to be part of the people of God. Especially in these closing chapters with the war completed and the city secure, a far more important work is underway, the laying of the true foundations of life in relationship to God. Foundations needed to go on as the people of God. Uh, things that are basic to what we now call discipleship, what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, last week we left off in chapter 8 with these people immersed in their Bibles, trying to discover who they were uh, and who they were supposed to be. And you remember how long the Bible reading was that day? You thought today was long. Uh, anyone remember? Six hours, the six-hour Bible reading. Uh, which we're going to repeat in a few weeks when we do the joining. Oh, no, no. Uh, <laughs> uh, they, they, and they were excited about it. They gathered in the square before the city gate. I think it was the fish gate. Uh, and I reckon they started a, a slow chant and the clap. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. Bring out the book. And then Ezra starts climbing the stairs up to the platform at the top and you, you can imagine them going, Aah! Ezra. <laughs> The book he was reading uh, and that they wanted was the book of the law, the book given uh, to Moses by God uh, of, of everything from creation right through uh, the Exodus story. It's the first five books of the Bible. Uh, it was the book of the law given a thousand years before or more uh, which defined who they were and how they were to live and worship as God's people. And, and Ezra read to the thousands gathered there uh, for six hours straight and then they broke up afterwards in the Bible study groups and went for another six hours afterwards. They were so excited, led by the Levites. So greatly did they want to know what God had to say to them and who they were. And as we're about to see, uh, that day had a huge transforming effect on them. It would shape and define their discipleship, how to be followers of God. It put all the foundations in place for them. And as we travel through these four chapters quite quickly, I just want to show you three critical things that became the foundation of their life as disciples. And the challenge for us is going to be, are these same foundations being laid in our lives as we're transformed by God's living word, as we, we engage with it ourselves at home and as we do it together in church and in our groups? Um, and it's just worth checking and doing a spiritual health check maybe, uh, checking your discipleship and mine against what we're shown on these three foundations. So first foundation, the people of the book confess their sins. They, uh, they confess their sins. They admit to God their failure to live for him and they apologise to him uh, and they're determined it's not going to be that way in the future. And that's what chapter 9 is all about. That one long prayer, it's really a prayer of confession. We've mucked up over years and years and years. Now, we know the importance of saying sorry, don't we? We don't like doing it. 
I mean, anyone here like apologising? Uh, anyone here really resent apologising? Uh, okay, a few more. Uh, eight eight o'clock, we're more honest than you guys. Uh, anyone want to say sorry for that? No, you go, sorry. But we know that it's important, right, for peaceful, good relationships that they when you do wrong, you're supposed to say sorry. At least that's what our parents tried to teach you. But we also know how difficult it is to do. It's one of the earliest words we're taught to say as kids, isn't it? Uh, but it's also one of the hardest battles any parent has to fight. Uh, maybe this story sounds familiar. Uh, little Johnny has just hit his sister or stolen a toy. Uh, she she comes in. <laughs> what did he do? What did he do? And mum and dad and I say, say sorry, Johnny. Not going to do it. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, say sorry or there'll be no more TV and you won't get to play with your toys. Jerry. <laughs> no, say it like you mean it, Johnny. Sorry. <laughs> and then the smug smile as he dashes off to play with his toys. Um, but what happens here in uh, Nehemiah He's nothing like that. It's completely different. You have a look at verse 2 of chapter 9. Pick it up in the second half of verse 2 there. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. That's another six hours. And then they spent another quarter of the day, another six hours, in confession and worshipping the Lord their God. Everyone, anyone here ever had a six-hour prayer time of confession uh, to God. Uh, actually, one of the things that's missing out of this prayer book, if you care, uh, or the green prayer book, and no other prayer books had it, the prayer book, the 1662 prayer book, uh, has a service of commination. There you go. Which is uh, a service dedicated to conf- when you've, the church has realised we have stuffed up in some major way, we've neglected some major... You, you, you do a church service together of public repentance and you read out all the curses from the law of Israel and uh, all the blessings of God for those who live his way and it's all about saying sorry, but that's kind of what they were doing. Uh, and uh, they, that's one of the effects the book is supposed to have on God's people. It's designed by God to do that in our lives uh, so that we'll, we'll take stock of ourselves and we'll run to him for mercy and the love that we so desperately need, which, which we know he's promised to give to those who turn to him in sorrow and repentance, just like these people did, apologising and turning away from our sins. And you see how it works through the rest of chapter 9, which turns out to be this very long prayer of confession, a prayer which traces the history of Israel right from creation, right right up to the present moment, from creation through God's promises to Abraham and the patriarchs, uh, through the exodus and Moses, right up to the exile uh, and to now. And it's not pretty. It's not pretty. It's summed up in the words of verse 33. You see it there? Here's the summary of the prayer. In all that has happened to us, you have remained just. You acted faithfully while we acted wickedly. We were evil. We did wrong. And the prayer is basically full of those two things. It's actually chock full of God's goodness. You made, you chose, 
You covenanted, you heard, you sent signs and wonders, you spoke to them from heaven, you gave your good law, you came down, you did not abandon, you warned, you sustained, you did not put an end to them. But the prayer is also full of the people's sins, arrogant, stiff-necked, refused to listen, cast an image of a golden calf, committed many blasphemies, disobedient, uh, turned their backs on your law. Uh, and again and again did what was evil in your sight. I don't think you can really read through the chapter without coming to the conclusion that to be the people of God is a very special privilege. It's It's a wonderful privilege, but it's a special privilege because we have an incredible God, not because we're particularly wonderful people. That's a privilege. Do you think it's a privilege to belong to him as part of his family? Do you know it's a blessing that you didn't deserve? Uh, he's not looking down going, wow, I'd be lucky to have you on my side. <laughs> no, we're lucky to have him as our God. God's amazing and that's what we're shown here. He's amazing in his power. He's amazing in his generosity. He's amazing in his love. He's amazing in his foresight. He's amazing in his forbearance. Look at verse 17. Here's what God's like. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger. He doesn't just fly off the handle when one thing goes wrong, even though he'd be within his rights when they've lived so blatantly against the covenant they swore they'd uphold. Be slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them. There are some people who imagine God as a giant mozzie zapper (laughs) who the moment you stray off course (laughs) and you're just left as a a smouldering nothing, (laughs) kind of puff of smoke. That's not the true and living God. Um, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's quick to apply the principles of love and uh, he seeks to restore people to himself. And that's the Old Testament summary of the God who reveals himself in the Old Testament histories. And we know even more how true that is because he gave his son. That's, that's what he would pay to have us back. He, so much did he love us that he would pay in blood to purchase our forgiveness and life. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. God is like that because we'd be in desperate trouble otherwise, right? The prayer of that chapter kind of reminds me of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, The Pharisee stood there, looked up the head and prayed, look at how wonderful I am, God. Uh, Look at everything I've done for you. You you are really blessed, God, because I go to church. (laughs) Uh, and the people in the square there that day could easily have done that, couldn't they? Uh, they're putting some hard yards rebuilding this place. Um, there's been uh, uh, terrible opposition while they've done it. There's been mockery and scoffing. There have been assassination attempts on their leaders. There's an army threatening them from across the valley and they have proceeded to do what they needed to do to serve God. They could have stood there and said, look at how wonderful we are, God. Now look what we did for you, just like the Pharisee. But they don't pray like that. 
Instead, they pray like the tax collector who beat his chest, wouldn't look up to heaven, who, because of his shame, he prayed, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the way to go. Because you remember which one went home right with God. It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector who went home justified, at peace with God, declared, forgiven, innocent, righteous. And so I guess the question we're all called to face is, which one are we going to be? Are we going to be like the people in Nehemiah's day, openly sorrowful and repentant when, when we've mucked up, uh, glad that our hearts have been exposed by God's word so that we could come humbly back to God, like the tax collector in Jesus' parable, or are we going to be like the Pharisee, unrepentant, unapologetic, and in the un- end, unforgiven? The other thing it reminded me of was in Acts chapter 7, uh, Stephen, young Christian guy, is hauled before the, the leaders of Israel. Exactly the same history of Israel is read out as in Nehemiah 9 and they put him to death because they cannot handle the word of God because they're like the Pharisee in the parable. If we're the people of God, our characteristic is not to seem holier than thou. It has to be that we confess our sins. That's the starting point at least. But that's not all they do in Nehemiah. The people of the book also commit to their God. They didn't just see wrong way go back. They, they turned around. Um, as you read your Bible, it doesn't just make you look back and face your past. It also points us to, to a great future. It sets the new path for us to walk on. Uh, discipleship starts with confession, but it leads to commitment. And in Nehemiah's day, they took their discipleship very, very seriously. You come to the end of chapter 9 and... Uh, they, they, draw, they draw up an agreement. It's kind of a, a new constitution, a covenant, a, a contract with God about what they're going to do. It's all written down. There's an agreement and it's signed and sealed. Uh, and the first signature on the list, chapter 10, verse 1, Nehemiah. Verse 38, chapter 9, in view of this, we're making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and priests are affixing their seals to it. Those who seal it, Nehemiah, the governor, son of Hakaliah. And then there's a list of all the dignitaries who signed that day. Uh, but then you get to verse 28 and the rest of the people from the least to the greatest, they join in the commitment. They didn't all sign the bit of paper, but the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, all who separate themselves from the neighbouring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters who are able to understand. It's everyone Everyone who wanted to be distinctive and live in line with God's word. And that's, that's the, the mark of a true disciple, isn't it? That they live wholeheartedly for God, living distinctively and, and differently from what our world says and what our culture thinks, committing to his ways. Now, that can be pretty tough, can't it? Especially if you're living in a hostile culture where the media and everyone around and people at work and maybe even people in your family are, are openly questioning God's ways and mocking them as ridiculous when God's laws are viewed as social evils that are only going to hurt people. But if we're God's people, we've got to worry about what he says and what he thinks rather than what they say and what they think. And we've really got to be wary of all the calls to come into line with the culture around us. You've got to be wary of those calls because the only call we've got to listen to is God's call on us 
to be holy and to be set apart for him. And that's what these people determined to do. And so verse 29 of chapter 10, they bound themselves with a curse, you know, may terrible things happen to us if we don't do this. And they made an oath to follow the law of God through Moses and to carefully obey all the commands, regulations and decrees of the Lord our God. It's kind of like our youth leaders I learned during the week that they sign a covenant about how they're going to live from day to day, about their integrity and how they're going to be part of church and Bible study and all kinds of other things, areas of life. And it's like this. In everything they would be his people. And, and they highlight some specific things which no doubt were the pressing issues of the day which showed how seriously they took it and how deeply they knew this commitment to God was going to affect everyday life. Now, it's not that the things that they write into the contract is the only thing they're concerned about, as if, you know, if we worry about this area of our morality, then we won't have to worry about lying and greed and so on. It's not that they were... They were just they were picking on the pressing issue, but they intended to, to, to do the whole lot of God's law. You see that uh, as you go through. But their commitment is such that you'd think it's... It's going to affect everything in life. It affects family life. Verse 30, we promise not to give our daughters in marriage to the peoples around us or to take their daughters for our sons. Who you marry uh, or who you allow your children to marry, as in their case, has got to be shaped by their discipleship. And just like then, God is just as serious that Christians should only marry Christians and set up Christian homes. Because you can't, you can't say Jesus is my king, he's my lord, my saviour, he's, he's everything, the most important one to me, and yet when it comes to the most intimate and important life-affecting relationships, say, ah, well, he's not a believer. It's not going to change anything. It's going to change everything. Right? Even at the level of thinking about your kids and how you raise them. The, the children of mixed marriages... Christian, not Christian, it's no surprise that almost none of them grow up serving the Lord. It's great when it does and we keep praying and begging for our kids. Um, but it's not surprising. It affects everything. Well, you know, I know she's a Buddhist, but she's very supportive. It'll be fine. It's not going to be fine, most probably. It affects family life, their commitment. It affects their business life. Verse 31, what's their commitment there? When the neighbouring peoples bring merchandise or grain to sell on the Sabbath, on Saturday, will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on any holy day. They're not going to trade on one day a week, which, which I think in their situation would be foregoing some pretty serious business opportunities. And it's not like that they were some wealthy, powerful international conglomerate that could take a hit just to drive their competitors into the ground. They're a poor, weak struggling nation only just rebuilding and they're saying we're going to say no to some good deals that could help us and it wasn't just the one day a week you read on every seventh year we're going to forego working the land and we're going to cancel all debts every debt home loans we're just going to wipe them out i lent you my car it's the seventh year it's your car now <laughs> uh, that's a huge commitment. 
You got to reflect on what it would be like to for, for them not to work the land one year in seven and to cancel every debt. I mean, they're an agrarian society to lose one whole year of harvest. That's going to affect two years because there's the year that they're missing it in and they're using up all their supplies. But the year after, they're not going to have any crops because they didn't work the land. And so it's two years they've got to prepare for in seven. Uh, Cancelling every debt, that's not even something that the most left-wing green senator would be brave enough to suggest in Parliament. (laughs) You serious? No debts? Their commitment seriously affected their business. And they did it because that's what the law of Moses required of them. It affects church life. That's verses 32 to 39 where where they promise that uh, they're going to uh, provide for the upkeep of the new temple that's just been built as well. That's in the book of Ezra. Uh, But then they'll also bring in the tithes of their produce and so on. A tenth of all their crops and their herds is going to come in and be given given to the the Levites who don't have any land. Uh, That's a big chunk of change, isn't it? Right, Especially when you're going to be missing a year of production, when you're not going to be trading one day a week kind of thing, to be giving away the tenth plus plus the other stuff for the upkeep. But their commitment is such that they happily and joyfully uh, make that promise as part of being God's people. We will not neglect the house of our God. See, it's all of life that they're promising to be committed to God in, in all of their comings and goings. And while we've got to be careful in working out the details of how that varies as for Christian as opposed to Jew because they're under a Jewish law and a theocracy and, you know, we want to kind of work that out carefully, the, the principles are all the same, that in marriage, in family, in business, in our church life, being a person of God uh, is going to um, work itself out and have a dramatic effect in everything that we do. Just like we saw when we looked at Romans 12 a few weeks ago. In view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Committed to God 24-7, 360 degrees. And the people of the book in Nehemiah's day didn't just think it or kind of go, yeah, yeah, sounds like a good idea. They, They signed, that's what they're doing. They signed on the dotted line. I don't know. If we did that going out to morning tea, you're going to sign this contract of what it means to be a member of St Barnabas. And <laughs> Would you sign it? <laughs> uh, if it said nothing under the list of communions, right? <laughs> the people of the book confess their sins, they commit to God, but then they celebrate God's goodness. You get through yet another exhaustive list of names in chapter 11 and this time it's those who agreed that they would leave their families and the property to go and live in Jerusalem because there's no one living there now. And if we're going to be the, the, the people of God and that's, that's the capital city, someone's got to be there. And so they kind of work out amongst themselves who they're going to volunteer to, to leave home and go set up home there. Uh, repopulate Jerusalem. But the whole thing ends with an incredible, almost rapturous celebration as they come finally to dedicate the wall that they finished building months ago. 
And that's what happens in chapter 12. And what a celebration that goes on and on and on in joy with pomp and ceremony, with singing, at their thanksgiving and trust to God. They're just filled with joy, celebrating what uh, everything that's happening and, and God. I don't know if you watched uh, the royal wedding of uh, William and Kate. Anyone? Anyone remember that? I was sitting in Outback Steakhouse uh, getting takeaway and I'm like, oh, it's on. So I sat there as the food went cold and yeah, I kind of watched the, the pageantry of it all and stuff. And that was nothing compared to Charles and Di, right? Uh, I kind of, that was, that was, that was a real celebration. Yeah, kind of, yeah. Uh, but even that wasn't a patch on what happens here in Nehemiah. Um, you'd have to read through the second half of chapter 12 to see just how exuberant it was. There's an impressive array of instruments in the band. Um, they had two choirs that they set up to lead all the people in two lots. Uh, one, they both started in the same place. One went round on top of the walls that way and the other one, the other choir set them off singing that way and then they met up uh, at the temple <coughs> uh, where they had a worship server that was really going to blow the roof off the thing. <laughs> um, uh, Andre Ryu would have been in his element <laughs> with the pageantry of it all. Or Alan Jones in his element with all these choirs going on. <laughs> but actually at the heart of the celebration wasn't a great conductor or an awesome worship leader or a magnificent singer. You look at verse 43. Why are they so filled with joy? Because they've been reading their Bibles, they understand and, and on that day they offered great sacrifices, rejoicing because God had given them great joy. God had given them joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. The sound of rejoicing in Jerusalem could be heard far away. You imagine if you got all the Christians in Sydney to sing the same hymn at the same time and it would be heard in Mittagong. <laughs> that's, that's what it's talking about, right? All around heard it. <laughs> they rejoiced because God has given them great joy. I don't think it's just because they're caught up in the moment with the, the wonder of the carnival, it comes out of what they've been learning about God and his word and that, wow, God has stuck with us through all, all this evil that we've done for thousands, hundreds of years. And joy gets mentioned four or five times in that one verse. And, and it's good and right and proper to have that joy just come bubbling out in response to a God who is so great, exuberant, unrestrained, carnival-style joy, just oozed out of them in response to God's word because they knew God and they knew they were forgiven and they knew that they were home. They knew they were seeing the promises of God unfolding right before their eyes as they resettled and reclaimed Jerusalem. And that's Old Testament religion again where, where they didn't even know the true sacrifice for sins in Jesus Christ, where, where they didn't have the sure hope of the resurrection to eternal life because their king and saviour had not yet come and, and conquered death. Surely we've got something to really get excited about. But hang on. We're Anglican. We don't do that. <laughs> and, and in fact, we get a bit suspicious about anyone who likes singing at all. <laughs> and, and yes, it can all be very self-indulgent. And you can use music 
to great effect to manipulate people. And while it's right to protect against those things, I think it's easy to go too far the other way and make sure that we never just enjoy singing together <laughs> uh, by wearing frowns and only singing dirges. I'm not saying we do that, but that's... we. You know, surely God has come into our lives and, and has gathered us in a family for joy. Not only joy, but that's one of the things. Knowing that we're his is supposed to bring us joy and and gathering with his people should be joyful. And it should be joyous as we go out to serve him in the world. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice, says Paul to the Philippians. And again, I say rejoice. In fact, he says it 14 times in the book of Philippians. We're going to do it over Christmas. Um, and he says that while writing from prison, shackled to a wall, chained to some guards, and he says it to a bunch of Christians in Philippi who are facing persecution. Rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. And it's a safeguard to you. And if that joy feels unnatural to us, I think we've got to start to ask the question of why. Why is it so unnatural? A part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy, isn't it? But just like the other parts... Uh, let's see if I can get it right. I got it wrong at, <coughs> at 8 o'clock. Uh, love, peace, patience. I've missed the joy one. Uh, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control, gentleness. I think that was the one I missed at 8 o'clock. There you go. Uh, but just like those things, joy may be something we've got to work on, not by whipping ourselves into a frenzy, but as we soak in the word of God. And let it fill our hearts with the wonder of who God is, of his love and mercy of, and the privilege it is to be one of his children despite who we once were, once his enemy, now seated at his table. The people in Nehemiah's day heard the book, they read it together and they ended up rejoicing because God had given them great joy. Not so much because they were having a great day, but because the, the thrill of seeing God providing, God protecting, God building a community by which he was promising to take his name to the nations one day in blessing. Does that joy ever seep into your bloodstream? Does it warm your heart to look around and see the, the joy of guilt forgiven? And people who are being transformed day by day, they may not be everything that you want them to be. They're probably not the people that they want to be. Shame was the way, life given, the Holy Spirit at work in our lives, the people gathered together as brothers and sisters uh, committed to his gospel going out into our community and into the world. The book, the people of the book celebrate God's goodness so, how are you going with those foundations? Do you have to do your spiritual health check? I've been starting to put on the back some self-reflection questions each week. You can do it yourself. But how are the foundations you're laying as you disciple others and, and in your own life? The humility to confess our sins, the zeal to commit to God in everything and the joy to celebrate his goodness. Father, thank you for your love and mercy. 
that, thank you for your word, which opens up our hearts and exposes who we really are. Please do your work in our lives by your spirit through your word. Please transform us, help us to confess our sins, to be honest with you uh, and with ourselves about who we are and our failings, to turn away from them, help us to commit to you in everything. Well, we know that means change. Give us the courage to do it, even if it means uh, affecting the way our family life works or our business works or our church commitment works. Please give us the courage to change that we might honour you. And Father, give us great joy in knowing you and who we belong to knowing our sins are forgiven, knowing your mercy and the love and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour, our friend, our King. In his name we pray. Amen.